Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Hartford, Connecticut Mayor Luke Bronin. He's a Rhodes Scholar, a former Navy reservist, an Obama administration official charged with disrupting terrorist financing networks, and a Yale Law School grad. He's in his second term as mayor of Hartford, and he's helped his community go from the edge of bankruptcy to revitalization. We spoke about that journey post-pandemic economic strategies, and how to reduce gun violence. Luke is one of America's best public servants. Enjoy. Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. When I think of Hartford, I got to say I think of insurance, but I know there's so much more. Can you tell me the story of your community? First of all, Hartford's a great city, but as you said, it's a city that a lot of people, I think, have misconceptions about to the extent that they have a conception about it. It was, for a long time, the insurance capital of the world. We still like to hang on to that title, although you know, there's less of a concentration of insurance than there once was. Till the mid-20th century, it was one of the most prosperous cities in the country. It had a strong industrial base. It had a huge concentration of insurance and financial services. The economic changes in the mid-20th century hit Hartford hard, as they did many northeastern cities. You had that profound shift in industry. You had manufacturing fall away. And then you had some pretty profound demographic changes in the latter part of the 20th century. And so a city that was, until about mid-20th century, one of the most prosperous in the country in more recent years has been a very different economic situation. It's a, a city that has some intense concentrations of poverty. It is one of the most diverse cities in the country. It's about 87% Black and Latino, and it has struggled since the latter part of the 20th century to reassert itself financially, economically, and find its its footing again. It's also a city that is incredibly rich in arts and culture and food and community, and also in the legacy of some of the things that came out of the 19th and early 20th century, incredibly beautiful parks. Almost every house or apartment in Hartford is within a 10-minute walk of a beautiful municipal park. It has held on to a lot of the architectural history that it has, but it also lost a lot. And so you have a city that where you can alternate you know, magnificent 19th century architecture with a surface parking lot where something equally beautiful was torn down. And so over the period of the last couple of decades, you know, Hartford has, has worked to reinvent itself, to reimagine itself. And that's work that we really embraced when I my team and I came in eight years ago and look forward to talking about that. Yeah, I want to talk about that moment you came in in 2016 and you know, I think it is a it's a fascinating city and in many ways a microcosm of many of the issues we face nationally. 
Tell me about the situation that you walked into and then some of the immediate actions you needed to take in order to address some of the challenges your community is facing. So when I took office in 2016, the city of Hartford was in full-blown financial crisis. The city was insolvent. It was bankrupt economically, if not legally bankrupt. And we prepared in earnest for a bankruptcy filing because one of the things that I was determined not to do was just to buy time, to find a way to stretch things for another year or two, but leave us still facing that crisis down the road. And the other thing I was determined not to do was just cut so deep into city services that the city stopped functioning and stopped having potential to rebound and revive quickly. And it should be said that our acute fiscal crisis coincided with some real fiscal challenges at the state level. So that was not a time when we expected that there was going to be a lot of help coming. So we prepared very seriously for bankruptcy. We had community discussions about it. We were preparing both our legal filing and our economic plan. We were getting the community ready to go through that process together. And thankfully, at the end of the day, we didn't have to do that, although we were fully prepared to do it. What we did do was some significant restructuring. You know, we asked our unions for a lot. We asked them to come to the table and give back a lot, and they did. They stepped up in some big ways. We asked some of our big companies to step up and participate financially in a recovery plan, and they did. We did make some very, very significant cuts. There was a limit to what we were willing to cut, but we had to make some really hard decisions. And then we were able to build a new partnership with the state where the state assumed responsibility for our long-term debt obligations. But even taking that off the books left a very large deficit that took all those other pieces to fill. And then we set about the work of rebuilding, and we started to get some real momentum coming into 2020. You felt like for the first time in a long time, the city was starting to fire on all cylinders, and there was just an energy and activity and investment coming in that we hadn't seen in a while. And then, of course, we smacked into the COVID wall, and like everybody everywhere, battled our way through that and are now working on another recovery, which I am confident will be strong, but it's a process. Can you talk about the decision to run for office? Not everybody would be actively campaigning in order to take over a city on the verge of bankruptcy. What made you decide that that was the right time to run and the right way to serve? First of all, because Hartford had become home. My wife and I moved to Hartford in 2006 after law school, and we fell in love with the city. And what we fell in love with was the fact that in this city, you've got so many of the things that you can find in a much bigger city. You know, you've got those beautiful parks, you've got amazing theaters, great restaurants, incredible diversity of food and arts and culture, great arts institutions, and also great creators throughout the community. So we had that sense of this was an exciting place to be where you could find the things you find in a bigger city, but at a scale where you could be part of the fabric of a community in a whole different way and where you could help to shape it. And so that's one of the things that drew us to Hartford to begin with, was to be involved in being a part of the city. And then we took some detours. We ended up going down to Washington. I worked in the Obama administration for the first four years. Uh, I was at the U.S. Treasury Department working first on post-financial crisis response and Wall Street Reform Act. And then in the latter part, run an office called the Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, which focuses on international illicit finance, counterterrorism, anti-money laundering. And at the time, a lot of it was about turning up the heat on Iran to get them to the negotiating table. And I love that work. I love that team. But we had little kids and I was on the road all the time and it was just not sustainable. And so we decided to come back up to Connecticut. And I had the chance to work a couple of years as the general counsel to the then governor of Connecticut, Governor Malloy, 
And in that role, got to be involved in a lot of things that I felt passionate about, but also got to become involved again in the city of Hartford. And I believed deeply and believed deeply in the city. And I was frustrated by what I saw as some pretty big mistakes that were being made. And so I just decided to take the shot. And it was a little bit of a long shot race at the time. You know, I primaried an incumbent mayor. And I think at the beginning, not a lot of people expected me to win. And I'm not sure I expected to win. But I believed that we had some big opportunities in the city. And I wanted to have a chance to try to go after it. I'd like to jump on that because, you know, you're working on terrorist financing and disrupting financial networks. You're general counsel to the governor and worried about big statewide issues. And engaging in the community you love is wonderful. It's also being worried about potholes and barking dogs and trash pickup. What surprised you about moving from the global or even statewide stage to the local stage? And how has that experience been? First of all, I loved each of those places. I mean, I, I, it was an incredible privilege to be able to do that work at the federal level. It was an extraordinary time and an extraordinary team to be working with. And I think we did make a difference in ways that I, I was conscious of. You could see it. And at the state level, got to work on everything from helping to, to write and pass some of the most significant common sense gun laws in the state to some pretty meaningful environmental protection work to criminal justice reform work, which I've been passionate about for a long time to help to diversify the judiciary. So issues that I, that I cared a lot about and was really excited to be part of. But there is something different about this work at the city level. You're, you're connected to it in a way that I think you aren't at any other level of government. It's not an abstraction. You can't separate yourself. You are always face to face with your successes and your failures. <laughs> and if you're not reminding yourself of them, others will remind you of them on a daily basis. But I actually really love that and found it probably the most fulfilling time of any of those those levels of government. I found this work the most fulfilling because you could operate with a level of nimbleness and speed and creativity and be connected to the work and to the people affected by that work in a whole different way. One of the things, even as we battled the fiscal crisis, we came in with some things we wanted to get done. And, and one of those things was to build a youth service corps, which would create an opportunity for young people in our community who have fallen off track or faced enormous challenges. You know, maybe they're out of school, maybe they got through high school, but were out of work and without a plan. And we wanted to give them a chance to prepare for the next step, to build the life they want, to get paid for it, and to make a difference. And so we built the Hartford Youth Service Corps. And that has given thousands of kids in Hartford now the chance to get paid for year-round work, make a difference in their community, get connected to a set of mentors and coaches who can help them make a plan for what's next and then move on to that next step, whether it's going back to school or going on to work. And that's the kind of thing that you have the ability to imagine and then create in a job like this. You have the convening power, you have the ability to go out there and help try to get other people bought into that vision and bring resources to the table. And I can give you countless other examples like that, but that kind of work where you can take an idea and make it real and see it affect people's lives is something that you can't really do at any other level of government in the same intimate, personal way. I totally agree. And I want to dive in on one point that's always been a personal interest of mine. Medium-sized cities seem to me a special and unique place to be able to pilot programs to break down partisanship, to approach things in different ways. What would you like to see from the federal or state governments or think tanks in their approach to medium-sized cities like Hartford? One of the things I would say is I think what was so 
important about the American Rescue Plan, you know, as part of the response to COVID, was the federal government trusting communities to invest resources in ways that that community thought would make the biggest difference. It wasn't just the fact that there were resources available. It was the fact that local communities had the flexibility to say, these are our priorities. These are why these things matter, to rally the community together around them and, and then make those investments. So we're not going to have probably <laughs> another American Rescue Plan anytime soon. But I think to the extent that the federal government can trust communities with the opportunity and, and when possible, the resources to make those investments that will make the biggest difference. I think you, you've seen some pretty powerful results of that in cities across the country. I agree. I agree. Flexibility to be little laboratories to try policy, I think would pay immense dividends, not only to those communities, but as you know, for other mayors to take ideas from other places and scale them up as we do in New Deal all the time. Can you talk about essentially COVID and post-COVID recovery and how it's going in Hartford and, you know, the lessons you learned that you think can inform policy going forward? I mean, first of all, as I said before, when we were coming into 2020, we felt like we were really starting to rock and roll. And a lot of things we've been working on were starting to come together. And COVID pressed pause on a lot of that and refocused the work for a while. And I'm really proud of our community's response in the midst of COVID. I think we came together in a really effective way. And now we're working hard at recovery. You know, there's a lot of good stuff going on, a lot of which is possible because of things like the American Rescue Plan. But there's no question that here in Hartford, like in cities across the country of every size, we're still dealing with some of those pretty serious symptoms of municipal long COVID, empty office buildings, enormous pressure on the commercial office market helping young people re-engage and reconnect and heal in school. And like a lot of cities, we saw a pretty profound spike in gun violence in the couple of years post-COVID that we've been working hard to bring down and working hard on that every day. So there are some real challenges that COVID exacerbated, that COVID laid bare, and we are tackling those as aggressively as we can. And at the same time, I think we have the opportunity to reimagine things in the wake of COVID in ways that are kind of exciting. You know, one of the things that I think had held Hartford back for a long time is that the downtown core had really become sort of a downtown office park. It was just office buildings and it was after five o'clock on weekdays or, or on weekends, it was pretty hollow and empty. And even before COVID, long before COVID, we made it a priority to try to turn downtown into a residential neighborhood. So, create a density of residential housing so that you could have that energy and feed on the street coming from people living in and around the downtown, not just from office workers commuting in and then leaving the city after work. And we've made some really good progress on that. But COVID has made that work that much more urgent and that much more vital to the future of the city. You know, we have seen a, a huge drop in office workers, and that hits restaurants, it hits bars, it hits retail, it hits just the sense of energy and activity in the city. And so we're trying to double and triple down on residential development and accelerate that work. And I think that that may be some of the most lasting work that we do, if we're able to get it done, and we look back five, 10 years down the road, you know, at where we pivoted post-COVID, I think that'll be some of the most important stuff. How do you think about transforming the infrastructure of Hartford, which is, a, as you say, has a long and storied history, transforming it to new uses like housing, economic revitalization? 
how do you have that conversation with your community and what kind of policies do you think can speed up the reuse or adaptation of infrastructure to meet modern needs? Like a lot of cities, we had both the blessing and the curse of old factory buildings, old warehouses, empty, vacant buildings, empty, vacant lots. And they can weigh neighborhoods down, but they can also provide opportunities. And so we've been really focused on trying to reinvent and bring new life to spaces like that, whether it's an old factory that is on the edge of downtown that's revitalized as a residential community, whether it's the renovation of the old Colt Armory Complex, one of the first factories of the Industrial Revolution, which is now a residential development near the beautiful Cole Park, or whether it's in an old railroad depot that's now a food hall in our Parkville neighborhood. We've really put a focus on trying to reinvent, reimagine those spaces. Places like the old gold leaf factory, called the Swiss factory, which produced a lot of the gold leaf for the country for many years. And it sat at the heart of the Northeast neighborhood, which is a neighborhood that isn't a federally designated promise zone. It is a neighborhood full of people who who are committed to the community and believe deeply in it and are working hard every day. It's also one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country. And we work together with a lot of partners to get that blighted, deteriorating old factory brought back to life so it could be a center of employment and of opportunity in that neighborhood again, as it once was. So we put a lot of emphasis on that, but we also are putting a lot of emphasis on, on infill development. I'm trying to take those vacant spaces, those surface parking lots, and bring those back to life. And the city hadn't seen ground-up development for a long, long time, and we finally are seeing and pushing it. We're participating in it. And like I said, we have to be aggressive in going after that because I think in, to some extent, this post-COVID recovery is a race against time. We've got to get these projects done to maintain the sense of momentum. That we have. Absolutely. And from one challenge to an even more difficult challenge. You've been very active in trying to reduce gun violence, both in your city as well as your state. Can you talk about some of those efforts and where you think progress is being made? Sure. And I will say as as a mayor, and I think this is probably true for every mayor in the country, gun violence is not an abstract challenge. You, You feel a real personal sense of responsibility. And every time gun violence wounds somebody or takes the life of somebody in your community, it weighs on you. And so you feel that challenge deeply and personally. And we're doing a lot on a lot of different fronts and trying to take the best ideas from everywhere in the country and put them to work here. And that's everything from building a re-entry welcome center, which we first housed in City Hall, and then it kept growing bigger and bigger. And we were able to move it out to a bigger location of its own in our community where folks who are coming back out from incarceration can get connected to resources instead of just being dropped on a street corner with nothing in their pocket, as was the case before. They now land in a place where there's a team of people helping to connect them to resources and get them hopefully pointed in a, in a better direction. Whether it's very individualized intervention efforts with young people or older folks who are involved in gun violence, recognizing that Almost without exception, when somebody is involved in gun violence, they are also coming out of a life where they have experienced enormous trauma and are likely dealing with some pretty serious consequences of that, including some serious mental health issues, behavioral health issues. I think that piece of it, we don't always do enough to tackle and to address. And then, of course, the more standard, at this point, more standard community violence intervention work of 
people who are out there as interveners trying to identify beefs, identify disputes, de-escalate them, help reconcile situations. We've got amazing teams that are out there, hospital-based violence intervention work, where when someone is the victim of gun violence, we use that opportunity to help get them connected to care that isn't just about that immediate physical trauma recovery, but is about wound care physical and mental and psychological in the weeks and months following that. Because tragically, one of the biggest predictors of involved in future gun violence is being a past victim of gun violence. So we're working on all of those fronts. One of the first issues that I was passionate about well before I got involved in politics was criminal justice reform. And I felt really strongly that we were locking too many people up, that we were locking too many people up for nonviolent crime, that we had gone way too far in the direction of over-incarceration. And I was really proud to be part of efforts at the state level to push some pretty significant criminal justice reform proposals. And I believe in those. And I've been an advocate for clean slate legislation and a huge advocate for reentry support. I also believe, and I don't think there's any inconsistency whatsoever in taking this view, that we are not doing enough to make sure that people who are responsible for pulling triggers and shooting other people are out of the community. At least where we are, where I am, all too often we have individuals who are repeatedly involved in serious firearm activity and then are back out very quickly on pretrial release, bail, or are continuing to be involved in this activity while on probation and parole. And so I convened a group, including a whole bunch of mayors from around the state, to try to push some proposals that I hope will pass in the next couple of weeks here in Connecticut that will apply some more serious and certain and swift consequences when people are repeatedly involved in serious firearm activity. And I think that that is a matter of saving lives. And I also believe that most of those folks who are involved have the capacity to build a different kind of life, but they have to be out of the community when they're actively involved in that kind of act. And I hope that we can get that done. I think there are many cities and states and leaders in those communities that feel the same way. You can both be for criminal justice reform and for accountability and a safe community. And we need to recognize that there's no one size fits all to the human experience, and we need to build policies that address the challenges. I mean, I've known you since you were elected, and you've been an intensely passionate, engaged mayor. You decided not to seek a third term. Can you talk to me about how you made that decision about when is the right time to pass the baton and when's the right time to stay in office? It was not an easy decision. I agonized over it for months. And I don't know if I can point to one thing that made the decision. You know, I think there is there's some truth to the idea that you can overstay your welcome and you should be conscious of that. I don't think that that was the case. I, mean, I felt pretty good about a re-election, but you can't do this work forever. And at the end of the day, you know, you've got to pass it on. And these have been eight long years that I have been grateful for. And I've loved, but you know, those eight years are like twenty in terms of their intensity. I think at the end of the day, maybe the decisive factor was that to do this work the right way, you've got to be 100% in. You have to be living it and breathing it and allow yourself to be consumed by it to do it the right way. And that's how I've tried to be as mayor. But I, I wasn't sure that I could keep that up, at least not without a little break. And I think you know it's important to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say that sometimes. So you're a Rhodes Scholar, an attorney. You've worked at the federal, state and local level. How do you think about what you do next and where's best to serve? 
I don't know the answer to that yet. I think there are a lot of different ways to serve. I feel lucky to have been able to serve in, in a bunch of them. You know, I, I also served for a long time as a Navy reservist, and that was all on a reserve basis, except for deployment in the middle of the Treasury stint. I really feel lucky to be able to do that work. It, it has every one of those jobs has given me a, a pretty deep sense of meaning and purpose. And so I don't know what the next step is. I do want to hang on to that sense of meaning and purpose. Maybe a little bit of a break and maybe a little bit of a detour. You know, someone once said, the only vacation I need is a different set of problems. And <laughs> that resonates a little bit. <laughs> but I do hope that I'll be able to do work that gives me that same sense of purpose and meaning because it's something that is important to me. Well, I want to say, you know, I've sat in a good number of policy meetings with you over the years and having your voice as an advocate for your community and communities like yours has been powerful and I've appreciated your service and we appreciate having you as part of New Deal and on this podcast. And so thank you for everything you've done and we're all looking forward to seeing what's next. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate it and enjoyed it. All right. Thank you. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.